This week on New Mexico in Focus, tribal leaders gather in search of answers and solutions to the latest surge of COVID cases in their communities. Not gonna lie, it's, it's been the hardest time to be a tribal leader right now. My hat's off hearing all the tribal leaders these last few days. My hat's off to all of them, my heart's with them. Plus the benefits and strategies behind decolonizing your diet this holiday season. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We want to wish you and your families a safe and socially distanced holiday weekend. We appreciate you spending a little bit of it with us here at New Mexico in Focus. November is Native American Heritage Month, and we are dedicating our show this week to stories of our indigenous communities and the issues they face. That includes the resurgence of COVID-19, which is, of course, continuing to create massive health and economic challenges. We will also look back at a terrific story we did last year on the reasons why we should all embrace the idea of decolonizing our diets. And that's just in time for your holiday feasting season. We also want to share with you some of our favorite videos from last year. Readings from the first ever Native American National Poet Laureate, Joy Harjo, who went to school at the Institute of American Indian Arts right here in Santa Fe. We'll begin right there with a timely poem coming out of the 2020 election. It's called, For Those Who Would Govern. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition for Friday, November 27th, 2020. I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and we welcome you to the show this week. Uh, it is an honor of the resilience and innovation of our Native American communities here in the state, which we thought was really appropriate as we bring Native American Heritage Month to a close. we got a lot of great stuff in store for you this week and a lot of great information and uh, some, some news you can use as well uh, this holiday weekend. Great segment coming up about uh, reconnecting to a plant-based, uh, more native-centered uh, diet. Uh, we call it decolonizing diets. Uh, that's a really interesting one coming up. We're also thrilled to uh, re-look back. It was about a year ago this time when poet Joy Harjo uh, came back to New Mexico for Indian Market. Uh, she had a new book of poetry out, An American Sunrise, and she was just about to start her first year as the first ever Native American Poet Laureate, National Poet Laureate. Uh, of course, Harjo is from Oklahoma, but she went to school uh, at the Institute of Indian Affairs and also UNM, so we like to call her one of our own. And uh, she did uh, an interview with us, but she also... Uh, did a poetry reading for folks, and we want to bring you some of her readings of that work this week. We're excited to do this and excited for you to hear it. So we'll kick things off this week with that. Here's Joy Harjo with one of her poems, uh, very apropos. It's called For Those Who Would Govern. Uh, here's Jean Grant with a little more before you hear from Joy Harjo. I wrote this little piece. I don't know if it's really a poem. <laughs> it's called, it, um, For Those Who Would Govern. <laughs> Haven't you ever wondered why there's no, you know, what are the qualifications to be a leader? And other than having enough money. And it seems like, because I watch, you know, certainly national, uh, local, uh, state, 
politics, tribal politics, you know, we're all human beings. And it seems like there should be, do you know history? <laughs> you know? <laughs> do you know the laws of your, <laughs> do you love the people? You know, what is, what is your intent? So I wrote this, it's in a book of poetry, but I have, I have history and all sorts of things in here. But it's for those who would govern. First question, can you first govern yourself? <laughs> Second question, what is the state of your own household? Third question, do you have a proven record of community service and compassionate acts? Fourth question, do you know the history and laws of your principalities? Fifth question, do you follow sound principles? Do you look for fresh vision to lift all the inhabitants of the land, including animals, plants, elements, all who share this earth? Sixth question, are you owned by lawyers, bankers, insurance agents, lobbyists, or other politicians, anyone else who would unfairly profit by your decisions? Seventh question, do you have authority by the original keepers of the lands, those who obey natural law and are in the service of the lands on which you stand? We talked about this a lot last week on the show, but Native American communities in New Mexico continue to be hit extra hard by COVID-19 in the early days of the pandemic, largely because of the lack of resources um, for these Native communities, things like no potable water, electricity, connect, broadband connectivity. They were some of the hardest hit communities, hot spots for sure. A lot of uh, Pueblos and tribes in the Navajo Nation uh, had curfews in place, closed down for people coming through just to try to get it under control. Of course, they're still struggling with all of that. And it was topic number one at last week's Tribal Leadership Summit. This is something that's been going on for about 17 years now when New Mexico created a cabinet-level position for the Department of Indian Affairs. And all 23 of the tribes and Pueblo sovereign nations in New Mexico took part. Our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, sat down with a couple tribal leaders, including the governor of Acoma Pueblo, where we talked about last week the Indian Health Services actually just recently shut down a hospital there, leaving them even in more dire situations. So they're going to talk about that, as well as just the the, uh, the harsh reality of the, the fact that many tribes have had to close their casinos, which is a huge economic driver, but it's more than that because these casinos and the funds made there help pay for things like firefighting services and other uh, community services. So just a really, everyone's in a really hard way and our native communities are no different. So this will give you a better idea about that, but also how everyone is staying positive as they can to help their communities and overcome the challenges that we all still face. Here is Gene Grant with a little more on that, and then we'll turn it over to Antonia Gonzalez and our special guests, including Indian Affairs Secretary Lynn Trujillo. New Mexico is back under a shelter-in-place order, of course, due to the alarming surge in COVID-19 cases over the last month or so. And there's no telling just how long it will last as leaders work to keep health care systems from collapsing under the weight of patients' needs. Tribal leaders across New Mexico are also struggling to keep their communities safe, healthy, and vibrant. 
Last week, leaders from all 23 of the state's tribal nations held a leadership summit, online of course, a dialogue in which they've partnered with the state for 17 years since the Indian Affairs Department became a cabinet-level agency. Correspondent Antonio Gonzalez was able to talk this month to two leaders about upholding sovereignty and working to keep their citizens safe and to talk to Indian Affairs Secretary Lynn Trujillo about the challenges ahead of New Mexico's native communities as COVID cases continue to climb. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, uh, Secretary Lynn Trujillo, Governor Brian Bayo, and President Gabe Aguilar. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Secretary Trujillo, uh, tribal communities have been hit hard by COVID-19. Early on in the pandemic, there was a lack of PPE, resources, funding to address the virus in tribal communities. What did you hear during the tribal summit from tribal leaders of their most pressing need right now when it comes to COVID-19? Well, um, thanks, Antonia, for the invitation. Good to see you, uh, Governor Vio, President Aguilar. Um, we heard a lot from our, our tribal leaders. We actually devoted a large part of the morning for the session um, to hear directly from leaders about their the impacts of COVID on their community, some of their priorities. Um, we heard a lot about on um, the ongoing support and need for um, food and water, increased testing, um, you know, a lot of interest in what's going to happen when the COVID vaccine um, becomes available and what that's going to look like and the partnership that needs to occur, not only between the states and the, and the uh, not only between the state and the tribes, but also the Indian Health Service and how we can better collaborate. We also heard a lot about economic recovery. What are we going to do as our tribes are um, feeling the impacts um, from the closures of many of their enterprises? And as we all know, um, tribes rely on their enterprises to help take care of their native citizens um, and their governmental functions. Um, and we also heard about education and the importance of education, but also what COVID has kind of laid on bare during this time and how do we continue to educate our kids um, during the pandemic. And uh, Governor Bayo, uh, Secretary Trujillo mentioned healthcare and of course the Indian Health Service and uh, the Indian Health Service on Acoma lands is no longer offering emergency services or critical care as a redesign takes place. Um, it seems like it's a repercussion of contracting and compacting, but the Indian Health Service still has a responsibility to the people of Acoma. And you've called on the IHS for immediate resolution, also uh, members of Congress for relief and funding. Uh, Governor Vaya, what, what role do you see the state taking in the hospital issue at Acoma? Uh, thank you and good afternoon. So, you know, we have been working this issue now for a while and we have reached out directly. I've reached out to Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and really grateful for her um, willingness um, and shared concern regarding this issue at ACL Hospital. Um, and so we are working directly with the governor at this point. Uh, the governor is in contact with the Indian Health Services headquarters in Washington, D.C. And um, so we are working together and going to join forces here to uh, see what opportunities there are to harness um, the, uh, some available funding uh, through Indian Health Services while also advocating at a higher level um, with, within the uh, congressional delegation and potential um, emergency appropriations for, for this service unit. Uh, this time of uh, COVID and this time of surge in cases really um, just elevates this um, 
this dire concern here at the Pueblo, not only for Acoma, but the neighboring communities who are users of this facility. And uh, Secretary uh, Trujillo, is there anything you can add to um, the facility there at Acoma, the healthcare facility? No, only that, um, you know, I know that our governor, uh, Lujan Grisham, as Governor Violet indicated, they've been in touch and, and in support. Um, the state has stepped in um, all along the way, I think early on um, for testing to help out with that. And we currently do um, through the Department of Health um, to assist in testing. You know, we look forward to working with the Pueblo um, to help make sure that their citizens are vaccinated as the vaccine rolls out. So, um, you know, really at this time, it's, um, it's, a, it's really dismaying to see what has happened in relation to the impacts and um, the closure of this facility, especially um, in light of where we're at with the pandemic, when we should actually be seeing uh, increase actually to our tribal communities for their health care services and their needs. And President Aguilar, your community is also dealing with a lot of COVID-19 issues. Um, you've ordered lockdowns for your community early on, established isolation units and another, a number of other measures to address COVID-19. Um, seems like it's a really tough time right now as a tribal leader to make these tough decisions. Uh, President Aguilar, can you Describe a little bit about the impacts economically when it comes to gaming and other ventures. How has the tribe handled that during the pandemic? To, to be honest with you, Antonia, it, it's been very tough. You know, it's been very hard on the tribe. You know, working with the governor, we didn't we didn't have to shut down, you know, because of our tribal sovereignty. But we thought about being great partners with the state, you know, and we took that first step to shut down and we actually shut down twice already. Um, one thing of being shut down, we, we were shut down about six months. You know, we, we, we hit a huge, huge loss in revenue. And uh, I'm thankful for the CRF funding that came in from Washington, D.C. But a lot of those relief monies were not able to use for lost revenue. So we couldn't use those money towards the casinos. So we had to use it just for COVID and anything that um, relates to COVID. So we had to get really creative on how to help our people. And, um, you know, and another thing is we applied for these um, municipal loans, the main street loans in um, Washington. Um, a lot of casinos, we have over 500 employees. So we were, we didn't qualify, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things that hurt Indian country, I believe. And, um, you know, we were in the middle of refinancing our casino, you know, we it just happened to be around COVID time. And we were two weeks away from signing in March. We're going to sign April around April 14th, but we closed. So the banks pulled back, the bondholders pulled back, and they told us you have to be open so many days before we can do business with you. So we reopened in July. Um, and we've been trying to push right now because, you know, we're, we're, we're crunched for time also where our tribe, if we don't get a deal, you know, we'll fall into default. You know, in next year, I don't want to be fighting legal battles, you know, and fighting, um, you know, to try to keep our casino open because that's what that's the way it's going right now is that, um, you know, COVID really hit us so hard that people just don't understand. You know, I mean, if we were um, if the deal wasn't due to next year, we would close the whole time, you know, but as of right now, the, like the, I was saying, the banks and the bondholders are telling us if you close that pretty much it's off the table, which is kind of. It's tough because you look at public safety and then you look at the health of your people. You know, we're, 
you know, our um, tribal casino, it funds the tribal government operations, fire and rescue, conservation, uh, parks and rec, you know, anybody that does maintenance, housing, everything's funded from the, from the casino. So, but, you know, if we don't stay open, we don't live, you know, and we've, we've had to step into our reserves, you know, but, you know, it, it, I'm telling you, this has been many sleepless nights thinking of ways. How can I help my people? And I think 60% of my casino is still furloughed. You know, out of 1,300 employees, I was looking at the numbers. We might have about 450 working right now, you know, and it, it's really tough. Um, I'm not going to not gonna lie. It's It's been the hardest time to be a tribal leader right now. My hat's off hearing all the tribal leaders these last few days. My hat's off to all of them. My heart's with them because – one of my good friends says, I'm getting out of leadership because COVID is too hard for us. I mean, it really mentally, anxiety, everything I lost. I'll tell you guys a little input about me right now. I'm trying to run the tribe. My sister and mom are both positive right now. So I'm, I'm trying to stay positive for them. I haven't seen them, you know, for a few weeks, but I check on them and call them. And I went and dropped food off in their driveway and drove off. But I mean, I have about seven family members that are positive and I'm trying to stay positive, but I, I didn't tell my community that because it's really hard because um, I got to stay strong for my community and push through. So, but it's, it has been a tough year financially in every which way. So. And I'm very sorry to hear about that. Uh, definitely COVID-19 is touching all of us. Um, uh, uh, Governor uh, Vio, uh, can you expand a little bit on that or any, message that you're trying to share with your people as a leader. Um, I've seen some of your video messages online. Thank you. Well, you know, one of the things that we um, wanted to ensure that we were doing during this time is to maintain communication with our community and to provide them with as much information and education about COVID and this pandemic uh, all very new to each and every one of us. And in the very initial term of the pandemic, we were very concerned because we had limited access to information as, just, as did the rest of the world and other places throughout the United States. But, you know, we do have concepts in our own uh, Akama oral history that talk about these times that talk about pandemic or what we call hiatsune in our language, that these are events that were prophesized and, <clears throat> and that at some time in the future, we might experience something like this uh, and our ancestors have in, in, in history. So, you know, we've really um, done all that we can to mobilize internally so that we have those strong lines of communication with our community. You know, we've mobilized uh, the first the day that the first case arrived in New Mexico. We offered we issued a declaration of a state of emergency. We established our health command. Uh, we closed the pueblo, um, and we've been closed since. And a week later, we closed all of our tribal enterprises. And uh, <clears throat> only until about two weeks ago did our tri travel centers open back up at fifty percent. Um, but during this time, we've tried to also assure our community that we, we want to help them out because we know that it, there's, it's such a strain on, on all of them and all of us financially, emotionally, uh, not, not being able to be true Akamas 
uh, in this time of, of, of great danger when we can't practice our own culture is just a, a significant detriment to us. And so, you know, we've, we've, been, uh, we've been closed, as I said, uh, since March, our tribal uh, casino has been closed, but we've been paying all of our employees, both on the tribal side and on our business side. Um, we just unfortunately, un very unfortunate that we had to conduct our first layoff um, last week. So it's, it's a tough time and we have more work to do. And as we think about the recovery, there are so many things that we need to take into consideration and it's going to take communication. It will take understanding, a collective understanding. And I think if we have that internally within the community, it really helps us. And we're seeing that right now, the results of that communication and education, because um, you know, it shows in our, our numbers, but it also, um, is reflected in the way in which our tribal members respond to all of the restrictions that we place upon them. And definitely indigenous communities across New Mexico and across the United States are resilient. And we keep hearing about different tribes and um, different leaders relying on culture, history, language to get through and community, even if that's virtually to get through these tough times. Um, I wanna thank you all for joining us here today on New Mexico, New Mexico in Focus on New Mexico PBS. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, time to hear from National Poet Laureate Joy Harjo again. And we just found out last week some exciting news about her Poet Laureateship. She has been uh, nominated to serve a third term that will start in September of 2021, and it's only the second time that has ever happened, a three-year uh, stint as National Poet Laureate. And we already mentioned she's also the first Native American to ever hold that post. So just a lot of exciting news to her and for all of us. We congratulate her, but we want to give her a chance for you to hear more of her amazing poetry uh, from her very own mouth. And this is a fun one. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's called Indian School Night Song Blues. Another Indian school poem. And uh, this is in honor of the women. And uh, at, at IAIA, at least back then, they, we used all the, there were all these military terms like details <laughs> and uh, restriction. And restriction is what happened is if you were caught with an infraction, like speaking, uh, and you know, IEI was pre considered pretty progressive, yet you were still not allowed to speak your native language and, uh, or drink. And if you um, were caught with any of that on the weekends, you were put on restriction and you couldn't, um, you, could, you had to stay in the dorm. But every Friday, but people always felt sorry for you on restriction and would bring you things anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that was usually where the party was happening, is on the <laughs> in the area of restriction. But there were so many stories. I mean, that's what gets me, is the story of who Indians are in America is nothing. It's like a thin line of stereotypes. And yet, we have such rich personal family uh, tribal stories that have, that are, they're amazing. So this is about one night on restriction. 
this is a fictional character who's speaking. (laughs) 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 Indian song nights, Indian school night song blues. I called to order the meeting of the girls on restriction at Indian school locked up in the dorm. We broke the rules now. It's Saturday night. No booze, you lose. Music courtesy of KOMA, straight from Oklahoma City, across the plains of tears and fears and over the mountains to hear the city different Indian school hippie crash. Let's dance. Where's the dorm matron? Hide the stash. We all admire Marlene. She's one of the best. She's Jackson Pollock in a dress. She only leaves the painting studio for sleep or work, and on Sunday, she sneaks out to the Indian hospital on the other side of campus. She took me once. The children clapped and laughed when she came in. She brought them gifts. All her desserts saved up for a week. Crayons, paper, tiny fans. We hid when the staff came in. They eventually threw her out. The hospital carried no insurance to cover the harm she might do. And Venus, now that's a name and a history. One parent from the north on the back of a horse, the other from the south over the back of a river. Venus is a singer, a real singer. Each singer has a particular gift. Some grow plants, some call helpers, some heal the sick, Some make the dead rise up and dance. When Venus sings, we enter into a trance. We no longer hurt from freak chance. You're going to make it to Broadway, either New York or Albuquerque. (laughs) (laughs) Mary, Mary, quite contrary, you're as silent as a mouse in the corner of the dining hall, chewing on still American bread. We don't know who you are or where you've been. Maybe you're dead to this reality. None of us are coping well with the BIA. We've read the reports. Doesn't play well with others. Won't speak or look us in the eye. Talks to ghosts. We hear what they're really saying. We have the guns and money and we have your children. Mary's spirit is mostly underground with clay. When she's with us, she roams the hall in precise eyeglasses, bell-bottoms laced tight, and a stack of poetry in her arms. T.S. Eliot, she says, needed to put his hands in clay. She reads him every day, perched with her books outside the powwow circle. Where's Kip? We can't find her anywhere. She's not in the laundry room practicing powwow in her underwear. She's not on the roof where she sneaks her smokes. She's not in the tent she made of government-issued bedspreads where she sketches high fashion of Indians in Paris. Here comes Kit with a knife. And there she goes, no top or bottom, only fury whirling in a spiritual nudity. She's headed out into the snow. She's what happens when somebody hurts the baby. We can corner our sheets so a quarter spins and know the drill for shots, debugging, and towels. We have a chance.
All right, I know food is top of everybody's mind this week during the holiday, even if we can't be together with our family as we would like. Food will still be front and center for most of us, and that's a great time to bring up uh, a growing movement, which really uh, started in Native American communities for centuries upon centuries, and that's really reconnecting to our food sources and a plant-based diet. We now know more about how beneficial that is to not only ourselves, but the earth uh, that we are all stewards of. And uh, we want to look back at a great piece we did with, uh, again, corresponding Antonia Gonzalez. She uh, visited the Jemez Pueblo to talk to um, the owner of Itality, uh, and uh, it's a company based on this idea of reconnecting to um, the earth and our food sources and uh, really what we're calling decolonizing our diets. So they have a great conversation about her mission and the message she's trying to share. They also are going to make some muffins, and you'll hear about that as well, and you can get the recipe for that on our website at newmexicoinfocus.org. So this is a great fun piece and hopefully gives you some ideas to pair with your leftovers this weekend. Here again is Antonia Gonzalez. Food! It's on the minds and stomachs of most of us this holiday weekend. And part of the celebration of the season has to do with sharing and eating those coveted family recipes and especially those specialty dishes. But as we dive into the holidays, we want to pause to consider where our food comes from and the health benefits of what's fueling our bodies. A movement here in New Mexico and across the country is striving for sustainability and healthy foods, especially in Native American communities. This week, we revisit a trip to Jemez Pueblo, where NMIF correspondent Antonia Gonzalez got the chance to cook and talk with a Native woman business owner whose mission is to decolonize diets. When I say decolonize diets, I think of the impacts that the standard American diet uh, has on my community's health. So when I say decolonize, I kind of referring to stepping away from the standard American diet and that includes right now, sadly, a lot of fast food, highly processed food. That's what I kind of would like people to step away from and also kind of return to more foods that are just more natural, more from the earth and even better, more native and locally sourced. How did your journey into this start? Little by little, I just, you know, first I said, no more fast food, um, no more beef, no more chicken, no more food that comes from the commercialized meat industry or dairy industry. And so once I let go of that little by little, it just kind of started, I started to feel better and better and away went the depression and I just got happier about life. And I realized like, wow, this is, this is, this is real. This is food is medicine is real. And it's a way I felt empowered. And from then I just started making better and better choices about my life's course. And that's how it all got started. What are some of the misperceptions you hear about plant-based diets? I think a misperception is that people think that we as native people just survived off meat alone. And then I get this one a lot about organic. There's a big misperception about that. And people attach that to, um, 
maybe wealthy people and they associate that with class or a certain group of people knowing you know that all the most of the food we have vegetables and fruit wise are all from the americas and you know we were cultivators we were agriculturalists as pueblo people we had all this food around us plant-based food and that was a big source of sustenance for native people so that's a big misconception and then also that you need meat for protein or you're going to be lacking in vitamins so that's a big big misconception when in fact you know like animals um, get all their nutrients from plants themselves so in a sense we're just cutting out the middleman and going directly to plants i think a benefit of going back to just plant food ways and native food ways is just that it's a cleaner way of living cleaner way of eating and that's the biggest part i would say to me it's about health and it's also about the impact on the environment so a lot of earth ethics and the benefits are just enormous enormous from health to you know from individual well-being to community well-being healing everything for the earth water the way we eat now the standard american diet is not sustainable for the earth so it's just like that's it's going nowhere and we have to decide if we really want to take steps in our own lives to make changes for the betterment of the world really share some of the ways you are helping people access more healthy foods I started my business, Itality, and um, it originally started with grab-and-go food. So I approached the um, Wallato convenience store in my community and asked them, can I stock your fridge with healthy foods? And they were open to it. I was locally sourcing from local native farmers. So it was just a win-win all over. So from there, I just started making salads, fruit salads, simple vegetable stir-fries, and delivering them to the gas station. It's been a year of that and it's doing pretty well. It's in high demand. I tried to be at pop-up event. I like to focus on native-centered, indigenous-centered events. I'm going to try to be at more feast days and just try to be that option for people where there's no options because we're completely in a food desert times 10 and people need the, just the option and the inspiration. I think even being a source of inspiration for children who see it in their community and are maybe have never seen you know fresh juice being sold on feast day or something like that so i just try to be wherever i can you talked a little bit about food deserts describe a little bit about the food desert in this area yeah so it's what they define as a food desert is being a mile away from a grocery store and that is almost amazing i wish we were a mile away from a grocery store here but we are 54 miles round trip to the nearest grocery store and within four miles of our pueblo is two gas stations and a dollar store so it's a lot of convenience food and when people need food and you know you can't make the journey or you're not able to make the journey even it's going to be the gas station or it's going to be the dollar store and those are the options that people have available so it's we're just trying to, it's, it's sad because most of New Mexico is rural. So most of New Mexico is in food desert and we all face the same thing. And through plant-based foods and traditional foods, I believe that we can reverse the health disparities that we face in our community. I believe that 
we will be healthier, more in tune, well beings in our community. It'll ripple out. And I think the healthier that our tables become, the healthier our plates get, the healthier our minds will be, and the better our communities will be. I feel like nutrition has a big part of what we face and how to heal and even on a cellular level. So I just want people to know that, you know, you, you can make the changes. Um, it's not too late in your journey and you can always turn to plant food and turn to the earth because she's our mother and she has the medicine for us. So food is medicine and <laughs> any steps are, are a step towards a better life. So that's what I want people to know and hopefully walk away from this with. Time for another poem with National Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. One of the great things about this reading she did at IAIA last uh, fall was um, that she shared a little of the backstory of these poems, which you obviously wouldn't get just by picking up the book, which we encourage you to do. Again, it's called An American Sunrise, but uh, it's great to hear what was going on in her thought process when she wrote some of this work, and we're thrilled to bring some of that to you as well. This next work is one called The Fight. This is called The Fight, and I love being back here. I, I came to New Mexico for Indian boarding school and art school, the Institute of American Indian Arts, when it was in the old place with the old buildings, they went and tore down and upset all of us. <laughs> and, um, and it was a BIA school there and a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. And you know, in our classrooms, we still, in one of our classrooms, we still had those stoves up in the late 60s that were used to teach just a few classes before to teach our young women how to uh, clean houses for people here in Santa Fe. And we still had those farms, the, the old barns out back for teaching the young men dairy farming. Wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago at all, but I've been, you know, this place has really fed my whole vision. You know, being in an incredible uh, class with young native artists from all over, native artists from all over the country. And that started really, certainly feeding my vision and our generational vision started way back with our ancestors and our people and the lands. But there it started coming together. And then later at the at, uh, I, I, at um, University of New Mexico Kiva Club, which was on the edge of thinking, okay, we're a community. We're not just native students, but we're, we're native students who are a part of all these communities. And uh, we were working for social justice, human rights. And that was part of, that's part of our education. And the poetry came out of that. And I always associate my poetry voice for, it, I came here and it began and found its home here. But along the way, all of us as artists and human beings, we have our struggles. And as Native people, certainly you add struggles on top of that. And this is about that. And embedded in this, of course, is our traditional Muscogee system, but that would take a while to discuss. But it's in the poem. It's called The Fight. We all go through this fight, every human being in here. So when you look around at somebody and you're thinking they're better than you or they've got it easier or why didn't this happen to me, or you can't judge anybody else's life. You know, everybody else has this, everyone, everyone in here has their own struggles. 
child, teenager, young man, old man, woman, the fight. The rising sun paints the feet of night crawling enemies and they scatter into the burning hills. I have fought each of them. I know them by name from before I could speak. I've used every weapon to make them retreat, yet they return every night if I don't keep guard. They elbow through openings in faith, tear the premise of trust, and stick their shields through the doubt of smoke to challenge me. I grow tired of the heartache of every small and large war passed from generation to generation. But it is not in me to give up. I was taught to give honor to the house of warriors, which cannot exist without the house of the peacemakers. We spent a lot of time this year on the show discussing New Mexico's complicated past and how that past is represented in controversial statues and monuments. One of the flashpoints for that controversy is often Juan de Añate, the Spanish conquistador criticized for his brutal treatment of Native Americans, but he is also revered by some and memorialized in countless statues and monuments, which are now under new scrutiny. Earlier this fall, we talked with New Mexico native, now Arizona State Professor, Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. She and correspondent Russell Contreras discussed her views on why and how the historical figures we choose to memorialize matter. Uh, Dr. Fonseca Chavez, thank you for joining us here today on New Mexico in Focus. Thanks for having me, Russ. Before we get into your book, uh, your current book and your future projects, tell me, what is it about uh, your scholarship that attracts you to uh, the contradictions of New Mexico's colonial past and what that tells us about today? Yeah, so in my first chapter of my book, I talk about growing up in northwestern New Mexico and sort of living within these contradictions, growing up in an area where there are Hispanic and Anglo and indigenous communities that, uh, you know, when you're, you're younger, you don't really notice the different sort of contradictions or political leanings or, you know, deeper histories, but you see those things enacted all around you. And so I think there was a point in my life where I started to have more sort of visceral responses to these things that were going on. And uh, when I was in my master's program at UNM, I, it dawned on me that I was like, I wanna study these legacies of colonialism. And a number of professors at UNM had told me that's overdone. We don't want to, you know, we don't talk about that anymore. But one of the interesting things is that once I stepped outside of New Mexico and I went to Arizona State to do my PhD, it was a different sort of way of looking at your home space. So there's something about like, if you're in New Mexico, you understand it and you live it and you get the contradictions. But when you step outside, it provides a different lens for you to look at what is going on in your home state. Your book, Querencia, uh, Reflections on New Mexico Homeland. Talk about how this book project came about uh, after you became a scholar. Yeah, so there was a few of us, um, Dulcinea Lara, Spencer Herrera, and Levi Romero, we had been doing this sort of conference circuit and we wanted to talk about New Mexico, but there were a lot of conference spaces, we were getting rejected from these conference spaces, from these like journal spaces, and we were just thinking like there needs to be a critical space to be able to discuss more emerging scholarship really on New Mexico, so we're really grateful to all of the the scholars who have really put that work into place and provided us with some of the sort of conceptual and theoretical models for how to 
how to uh, look at New Mexico in different ways. But we really wanted to think about, you know, there's this huge group of people from New Mexico that are, some of them are leaving New Mexico, some of them are being trained in New Mexico, but we really wanted to talk about what this new generation of scholarship looks like. And so um, this came together actually at uh, the Buffalo uh, Thunder Resort in Santa Fe at the Rocky Mountain Modern Language Association Conference. And so we all did a presentation there and then following the conference, it you know we're outside in the lobby and we're like, hey, we should do an edited book. And then that was the the genesis of that project. Now you're in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. You grew up in Grants, New Mexico. What have you noticed looking at New Mexico as we are having this debate over monuments? Uh, of course, we had a violent incident uh, around a, a monument, Conquistador in Albuquerque, and just recently at the time of this interview, we had. Uh, a monument taking down on Indigenous Day in Santa Fe Plaza. What has been your reaction to watching this? So it's been interesting because I'm I'm here in Mesa, Arizona, and I have a lot of friends who are directly involved in some of that activist work in New Mexico. And so when the protest was happening, it was being planned, I guess, in Alcalde and then also in Albuquerque, I was getting text messages and emails and Facebook messages from folks just sort of keeping me in the loop because they knew that this was part of the scholarship work that I had been doing. And so I'm really grateful because I know that sometimes it's hard to be out, well, not sometimes, all the time, it's hard to be away from New Mexico, especially when so much of the work that you're doing is in action. And so, you know, part of it was thinking about why well, can't physically be there, of course, because of COVID, because of travel restrictions, because that's not where I live right now. And so Esteban Rael Galvez and I decided that we would, um, you know, think about what we can do from a scholarship uh, standpoint. And we put together an extended decolonial Oñate bibliography that has, you know, different resources, archival, historical, literary, um, you know, newspaper articles that had come out over the last, uh, you know, let's say 10 years about um, Oñate so that anybody who wanted to learn more about that history could. And the idea was it for it was that people would start to really debunk or demystify this, this notion that Oñate is a founding father and a hero, because certainly in my scholarship and in Esteban's, that's not true. In other states, Latinos in other states, Latinos, Chicanos, Hispanics, uh, it, we always look at this idea that people in New Mexico uh, venerate Oñate and other conquistador figures is somewhat odd. But why, from a New Mexico perspective, do these conquistadors, are they celebrated in New Mexico in this space? It seems, yes, there are instances in other places, I'm thinking of the coastal area of California where these colonial figures are honored, but why he is Oñate such a celebrated figure in New Mexico when he's not in the rest of uh, the American Southwest? So, I mean, he has, a, he has a lot to do with the founding of what people would say is Spanish New Mexico. And so folks that can trace their ancestry. And a lot of this was in large part to Fray Angelico Chavez's work on the founding families of New Mexico. Um, but even Fray Angelico Chavez states that of all of the colonists that came with Oñate, very few states. So the notion that one could trace themselves back to Oñate, it's pretty slim. But then they also count Don Diego de Vargas as a second sort of founding father of New Mexico and people can trace their ancestry back to that. So a lot of it has to do with the way that we can trace our ancestry back to, you know, what, like, like I said, people would say our founding fathers of New Mexico. Um, but that line, it's not a straight line, right? So we have to think about the more complicated history, um, colonial violence, settler colonial violence, uh, genocide against indigenous people. And for some reason, there are a lot of folks who, if they are able to trace their ancestry to Spain or to those original settlers, 
they will sort of sidestep or um, excuse the violent past and say, well, we have to think about what he did and we have to think about, you know, where would we be if he hadn't come, right? And of course, within like a colonial model, this whole conversation about the what ifs is really, it's unproductive because it doesn't give us where, where we are now. It doesn't tell us where we are now. So of course, what ifs are good for the future, right? What if we can imagine a different kind of future? We can't imagine a different kind of past. That past is what it was, but we have to be honest about what that past was. And how does the uh, struggle for statehood play in this? We know that some scholarship has touched upon uh, the idea of pura sangria, the eugenics movement at the time, and it's the racism at from the turn of the century. Does that play a role in the current uh, Spanish conquistador identity that is prevalent in New Mexico today? Of course, and this doesn't apply to all Hispanics, you know, across New Mexico. So I'm talking about, you know, certain segments of it. But we know that New Mexico became a state in 1912, but that New Mexico experienced the longest period of territorial, was a territory longer than any other, you know, state in the U.S. And part of that has to do with like very racialized like politics that deal with, again, directly that idea of, of subjecting the other to these notions of being anti-Protestant, anti-English speaking. I mean, they were, there were indigenous, mestizo, dark-skinned individuals in New Mexico that wasn't really like the idea for the formation of the United States at the time. So a lot of the protests came because we were, we spoke Spanish, we were Catholics, and we were brown, and we were poor. And that wasn't something that the U.S. determined to be the ideal for the formation of the nation. So, and you saw that from newspapers as far as the Midwest, you saw it in the East Coast. So there were a lot of um, individuals who were not supportive of New Mexico's buy for statehood. And so some of the strategies that New Mexicans employed at that time was to show that they were also European, right? So if they descended from Spanish conquistadores, then they also were European. So they had it, they advocated for this sort of shared heritage with um, Euro-American settlers. And so it's interesting just to kind of see how much of that, and if we think about, again, like this idea of legacy, how much of that continues to today. So people will, um, you know, they will say that they are Spanish American. Um, the census doesn't do us any justice because people get very confused about, even if you identify as Hispanic, your racial category is white, and that's confusing for some people to identify as both Spanish and white. So I think in a lot of ways, the census perpetuates those identities. Um, but yeah, that was very much sort of a social strategy. It didn't mean that they were actually white. It meant that it was a social strategy. You mentioned the social strategy. Italian-Americans used Christopher Columbus to battle discrimination, kind of put themselves in the American narrative. Was that also going on with New Mexico Hispanics to say, look, we are, we are connected to the narrative of this land and therefore um, we, don't, we don't deserve discrimination, segregation, subjugation, that it was a strategy to, to try to insert themselves in the narrative. Is that, is that what also is going on? Yeah, so I've not heard that particular narrative. And I think part of that is, can only be premised on, you know, if, if the United States as a nation recognizes prior colonial periods, then that could be a narrative, but they don't. So the whole idea for colonization is to wipe out any existing communities um, that, it, that were here before the United States colonial period started, right? So 
You know, we know that with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, there were certain agreements that were made between the United States and the then 100,000 individuals who elected to become U.S. citizens at the end of the Mexican-American War. But, you know, we also know that the Chicano movement made, you know, the larger public aware that those, those treaty rights were not honored. And we know that the U.S. has a long history of not honoring treaties. And so I think it's all... Um, it's a strategy certainly that, uh, you know, early Spanish Americans used in literature in the, you know, first part of the 20th century, but I don't think it was something that the U.S. as a nation uh, signed off on. Now, as we're having these racial conciliation conversations and, and Albuquerque has been included, um, some Hispanics have, who, who have supported the monuments say they're offended that they're being attacked and they see this as an attack on their heritage because they can trace their lineage back uh, decades, if not centuries. What's your reaction to them to say that, hey, look, um, I, this is my family you're attacking. This is my heritage. This is something that I've been taught throughout my life. And now you're attacking it. What is the response to that? Yeah, I wonder, you know, I wonder to the extent, like what have we been taught, you know, growing up about our heritage and also about our shared heritages, right? So, you know, in New Mexico, we have multiple heritage that exist and, co and sometimes coexist and sometimes don't coexist. And, you know, one of that, one of those conversations that comes to mind is in 2008, when The Last Conquistador was filmed, it's a documentary by John Valadez and Cristina Ibarra, but they were talking about the largest equestrian statue in the world, which is in El Paso. And that is, um, it's named the equestrian, but people know it as Oñate because that, that was, um, it was a compromise by the El Paso City Council to name it something else, right? And that was sort of an effort to sidestep the fact that they did want to put up an Oñate statue. Um, but the idea for that, you know, one of the individuals in there, Conchita Lucero, had commented that this will finally be an unveiling of our history. And that documentary starts with her narrating that when she grew up, she didn't have an opportunity to learn about her Spanish-American history. So it's interesting to see how her sort of argument parallels the same sort of arguments that indigenous communities or even Chicanx communities might make in terms of not being not being able to have access to their history, right? So, so the narrative is the same, and but the results are sort of different, right? Because one exerts more power over another. It's difficult because these are all, you know, basically ethnic communities. But what happens in New Mexico when these ethnic communities start pitting themselves against each other? Um, you know, in New Mexico, certainly it looks like people who identify as Spanish American tend to exert some amount of superiority over people who um, are more mixed blood or who are indigenous. And that, again, is a social construct, a social hierarchy construct, um, not certainly not based on race, because we know that the settlers that came with Oñate were mestizos and mixed race individuals. So they weren't all pure-blooded Span Spaniards either. You know, you talked a little bit earlier about the pureza de sangre notion. So they weren't that when they arrived. And so it's just interesting for them to sort of link onto this notion of being Spanish American. Now, I will say that, you know, the Spanish colonial period was long lasting. It was more than 300 years. And so there is scholarship that shows that people tend to affix themselves to a country that has been, that has controlled this area the longest, right? So people feel an affinity toward the Spanish colonial period because in comparison to the US colonial period, you know, the Spanish colonial period has been twice as long. And so people have, people tend to adhere to 
a culture that was in formation for 300 years, right? So it's sort of like, we're still, like we're still adjusting. A lot of the, the authors from New Mexico in the early 1900s, like I mentioned, were really having a hard time grappling with the idea that their culture could be erased, right? And that was, that was a real possibility for, you know, especially when, you know, modernity arrived to New Mexico and Americanization efforts were in full force. And so there's a lot of, you know, obviously since at least, you know, the mid 1800s, people have been contesting this notion of cultural erasure. Now, a number of cities across the country are, are, have convened racial healing councils, task force to talk about uh, systematic racism or systemic racism and uh, various monuments, whether they're Confederate or Spanish conquistador monuments. Albuquerque is one of them. What has been your reaction to the attempt to convene a committee of community members to have this conversation? Is this helpful? Will this decide what we can do with these monuments? Or is this a band-aid to circumvent very difficult discussions we need to be having? I think it's a laudable goal to, you know, ask people to participate in conversations where we really take a deep look at our heritage, you know, the biases that we carry with us, um, the different kinds of privileges that we exert at one time or another. Um, the, I know that folks in the city of Albuquerque did do the race healing and memory project. I don't know if that's the correct name, but so they did do a project and it was convened over the summertime and there were different focus groups. And um, I participated in one of them. I didn't participate in the, the follow-up sessions. And I think that for a lot of folks um, who have been doing this activist work um, and scholarship for a long time, it feels like a frustrating pause in the process um, to sit and have to do that work when they feel like they've done that work and they're ready for action. And I think that you know, the resulting, you know, toppling of the obelisk, for example, is, is it, it's a prime example of the way that people, um, they've waited. And, you know, the mayor of Santa Fe did, you know, say that something was to be done about the obelisk. When they saw that in action, then they reacted to that. And I think that that's, um, you know, the big thing in New Mexico is that folks are done waiting for justice. And it's a hard thing to wait for. And it's a hard line of promises to not deliver upon. And finally, I've asked you this before, but if these statues were removed, what should replace those spaces? Yeah, so I think this is a question going around, you know, what are we going to do with these things? I don't know that we even have to replace it with anything. I don't know that we take something down, um, you know, whether we decide to put them in museums, whether we decide to like melt it down and hand out, you know, pieces to individuals. Uh, I don't know that there actually has to be a conversation about what should go here instead. You know, I don't, I don't see it unreasonable to take them down and that can be the end of the conversation. Now, I know people have talked about, um, you know, we should have uh, statues that, that pay honor to other individuals within New Mexico. Um, of course, Pope has been, you know, talked about quite often and we do have some statues of Pope in New Mexico and at the, at the nation's capital but I also wanna recognize that indigenous women have been at the forefront of most of these activist efforts in the community and no one from what I've heard so far is talking about honoring indigenous women at this moment with, through statues. So that's a possibility, but then also, you know, within my larger work, I'm always advocating for like, can we stop talking about this sort of hero founding father notion? Do people have to be statues because, do people get to be statues because they're heroes or can we talk about just community members who have done 
you know, it takes a lot to survive and thrive and especially through colonial processes and traumas. And, you know, if we can honor people in that way, I think that that's pretty exceptional as well. The name of uh, Vanessa's book is uh, Querencia, Reflections on New Mexico Homeland. Thank you, Vanessa, for joining us. And we appreciate you coming and we look forward to you coming back soon. Thanks, Russ. One of the driving stories of 2020 has been this conversation that is started largely out of the Black Lives Matter movement about who are the figures that we memorialize as a society and how do we memorialize them and how does that define our histories? Uh, Of course, there's been a lot of conversation here in New Mexico specifically about Spanish conquistadors and Don Juan de Oñate and some of the statues to him. We had the situation here in Albuquerque with the protest um, and the removal of the statue. And at that protest, unfortunately, someone was actually shot, um, which uh, forced the city to pull that statue down. They are in the process now of coming up and getting feedback and coming up with a plan for what to do with the statue and also just how we share these stories and this cultural experience, diverse experience that only New Mexico can claim, really. And, of course, also in Santa Fe, we had the toppling of the obelisk in the Santa Fe Plaza uh, after protests there. Don Juan de Oñate has always been a controversial figure. Native American communities have a much different uh, take on him and his legacy because of the way he treated uh, the Native people here in New Mexico when he came through. But there are also plenty of people who revere him. And uh, that is obviously why we have memorials today. And it's a conversation that's not going away anytime soon about how do we do justice to all those different takes and be honest about our history. And more important than that, move forward with all of that knowledge and that nuance. And we had a great discussion here earlier this fall with Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. She grew up here in New Mexico and is a professor now at ASU in Tempe, Arizona, where she is working on a biography of Don Juan de Oñate. And she's got some really interesting thoughts and takes on this whole question, again, of who we we memorialize and why, and more importantly, why we need to start thinking about all of that differently. So here now is that interview with correspondent Russell Contreras. All right, before we go tonight, we have one more poetry reading from Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. And we picked this one specifically, as your hero Gene mentioned, because of uh, we think it speaks to the challenges and the experience we've all had in 2020. Uh, but the good news is it ends on a positive note, and that's something we're all hoping as we get ready to turn the page into a new year. And we want to let you know there is more with Joy Harjo, including more poems and our interview that we did with her when she was here last year. You can find that on our YouTube page. Just search for New Mexico in Focus or on our webpage, newmexicoinfocus.org. So we thank you for uh, checking all that out. We know you will enjoy it for sure. But uh, here now is Jean with one last introduction for Joy Harjo. Before we wrap up this week, we want to share another poetry reading from National Poet Laureate Joy Harjo. And news just broke that she's been appointed for a third term starting in September of 2021. 
Congratulations. We feel like this poem is especially poignant as it exemplifies and challenges the sense of loss that 2020 has forced on us all. But it also carries a message of the importance of perseverance and always moving forward. Here again, Joy Harjo. And we're all here for just a little time. You may not think that when you're young, but as you get older, there's, I know that there's some kind of equation that, that will tell you how time shifts, you know, in relationship to your age. Because we all remember being very young and how one day was an eternity. Being called in from the eternity of outside as a little kid from playing was, you know, destroy, it was you know, horrible. And now days just, and it gets faster and faster. But life is still precious all the way. And in that equation, you would also see that the story doesn't begin when you're born. It begins way before your birth. And it doesn't end when you leave. It just keeps going. And I think when you get, when you come into this world, you know that. When you are spend time with newborns, they come in, they still have the whole story. They still remember the story. And they will tell you that story. And I've noticed that usually one of the, somebody comes in with every child. It's usually somebody, your relatives, that want somebody who's come in as a caretaker. And when we leave, they're there to greet us. And the story, the story continues. For Shan, first morning. This is the first morning we are without you on earth. The sun greeted us after a week of rain in your eastern green and mountain homelands. Plants are fed, the river restored, and you have been woven into a path of embracing stars of all colors, now free of the suffering that shapes us here. We all learn to let go, like learning how to walk when we first arrive here. All those you thought you lost now circle you, and you are free of pain and heartache, heartbreak. Don't look back, keep going. We will carry your memory here until we join you in just a little while in one blink of star time. Since it is a weekend of leftovers, wanted to take a, a chance to uh, provide some of that for you as well. We talked earlier on in the show about the Tribal Leadership Summit that took place last week here in New Mexico virtually as Native communities uh, find new ways to address the challenges presented by COVID-19. And uh, we took a few extra minutes to talk to our tribal leaders um, about a variety of topics, including the possibility of Representative Deb Holland perhaps being selected to head up the Department of Interior under uh, President-elect Joe Biden. So some interesting thoughts here on that. Wanted to share that with you before we go. Uh, here again is correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. Thank you for joining us for this web extra on New Mexico in Focus. We have uh, President Gabe Aguilar and Governor Brian Bayo. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. President Aguilar, we know that state and local relationships are really important, but also on the federal level, um, you it's no secret that you and other tribal leaders across the country have been critical of the Trump administration on a number of issues, including CARES Act funding 
and also leadership of the Interior Department at the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, with the Assistant Secretary. Uh, we have to wait and see what's going to happen in January, but uh, what would you like to see with the next presidential administration? What's your top priority? Our top priority is to um, engage with tribes. You know, I could, I've been in, I've been in leadership. This is going on my, I believe I'm starting my ninth year. Um, one thing I could say is from four years ago to now, the welcoming of tribes in Washington hasn't been the same. You know, it seems like Washington has been going through the motions, you know, with a lot of the staffers that have been on right now, you know, you know, with President Obama, he, he had a Native American um, cabinet, you know, he had people that cared, you know, so tribes really had that outreach, you know, our lobbyists had a lot of people they could rely on that were there to help Indian country, you know, but, but like lately, you know, even with the trying to include the Alaskan tribes and the CRF funding, things like that, you know, tribes are already hurting as it is, you know, and trying to pull sneaky stuff, I call it, is not what it's about. What it's about is helping people. And, you know, I, I, could, I could tell you, I felt the difference. And I felt like um, sometimes the people that were put in positions were not Native American friendly. I felt that they didn't like Indian casinos, you know, and that's just from my point of view, because um, I really think that, um, you know, I'm a people person. I think I can get along with everybody, but sometimes, you know, you know, getting brushed off, you know, you only have five minutes. That means you only have five minutes, but before people used to make time. And if they couldn't give it to you in Washington, they would give you a, a few minutes to talk later, you know, but it, it's, it's two different worlds, you know, and I always tell my people, you know, you know, a president that's trying to do something economy for the economy, you know, trying to do something, but he's bad with the people, you know, he's bad, you know, like, just like, I want to say, um, Columbus Day, he was saying, we're going to do Columbus Day instead of Indigenous Day. You know, our people fought hard to have Indigenous Day. We um, we deserve it. But it's just, it's, it was just things like that that made it really hard, you know, as a tribal leader. I try to respect both sides, you know, and I try to work with everybody. But I'm going to tell you that it's been really different with this administration. It's been tough. And uh, Governor Bayo? You know, Last year, I served my first term as governor, uh, but it had been 28 years prior to that appointment as governor that I served as lieutenant governor. And one of the things that I was conveying to federal agents uh, during my first term as governor last year was how disappointing it was, really disheartening to see uh, just what President Aguilar has mentioned, this significant change. Um, and, you know, where consultation is concerned, I, I, I was literally floored to, to ex experience and see firsthand that consultation 28 years later by federal agents has not improved. And consultation is such a critical piece to these government to government relations on a state level, on a federal level, local level. And when our federal trustees don't acknowledge the importance that of that process is in a significant detriment. And so as a result, you know, even in our recent history, um, 
we see the, the results of that, that the tribe's voice, tribal voice is maybe unheard in some cases, um, that there is not a seat at the table for us, and that oftentimes process of a process of consultation or even a maybe a less formal meeting doesn't necessarily yield any positive outcomes. And in this time of COVID, what was just glaringly shocking to me was that the, the Trump administration other and federal officials insisted upon moving forward with significant initiatives in, in light of COVID and knowing very well that tribes like Acoma were shut down, that we could not come to the table prepared with our experts and with our staffs to have meaningful consultation. Yet they pushed the, the process. And so as a result of that, we are in a, a, at a, a significant loss and it will take some time to make some uh, repairs. And I'm looking forward, my term ends at the end of this month or at the end of December, but I'm, I look forward to my tribal council and future governors of, of ACOMA who I hope through the, in the Biden-Harris administration will finally, or not finally, but again, have that seat at the table, that consultation is meaningful, and that consultation is crafted jointly and not one, um, only one uh, way of, 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 of handling that. So um, I think there's a lot to look forward to. Um, and we're, I, I think that tribes throughout our country are going to be very, very eager with, uh, to, to have this dialogue with the new administration because as we all know, as a result of COVID, we have so many complex issues to, to, to work on together. And, and at the end of the day, we, we need the support of the federal government in recovery, access to vaccines, um, education, healthcare, all of those critical things uh, are, are going to be very important as part of this recovery process. And in the Biden-Harris uh, administration, there's been some buzz about possibly uh, New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland maybe even um, taking a seat at a cabinet, high-level cabinet position of Secretary of Interior. I know there were tribal leaders at the National Congress of American Indians that wrote a support letter for her to take that position. Um, uh, President Aguilar, uh, your thoughts? I, mean, I think she would do a great job. I think Deb is a great candidate. You know, she knows Native American law. She knows New Mexico. She knows Native tribes. I think this will be a big win for New Mexico because, um, you know, I met like Governor Val, we've, we've worked with many people that were in that position before, you know, a lot of them been from back East, you know, but, you know, I think that maybe sometimes New Mexico, Arizona and other tribes might be left out because they don't know too much about us. You know, we have a huge culture, you know, and they, I think this would be great. I think it's one of the greatest ideas I've heard because um, having somebody that just has that knowledge front hand, 
and actually a congresswoman that, you know, I imagine with all her experience, she got these last two years to step into that position. I think it show hit it, knock it out the park. Uh, Governor Baya. So <laughs> I had a, a conversation with uh, Congresswoman Holland just a few days ago. And uh, one of the things that I told her was that, uh, of course, I have no reservations on making any recommendations on her behalf to be appointed to a position like that. But we also had a, a very, um, I think, important conversation about Deb as a leader in general and the powerhouse that she's become in the Congress and the extremely important advocate that she is to all of Native America, to people of other races, to the LGBT community, to many other groups who have been marginalized as, as a result of uh, this administration and years of just racial injustices. And so she brings an incredible power and uh, level of creative and innovative thinking and solution driven um, thought process that is so important. And, um, and while I know she would do a, an extremely um, uh, incredible job as, as the Secretary of the Interior, you know, I also want to see her grow and continue to grow and continue to make, to be the influential leader in Congress. I see Deb as Speaker of the House. I see De Deborah Holland in, as vice president or even president of the United States. She's of that caliber. And I have such a great respect for her. Wherever Deb, Deb has a secure place in Congress right now, and I'm looking forward to her leadership there. But if she was to be placed in that very important position, I and the Pueblo of Acoma would work closely with her on the initiatives that we are very important to us um, in the various uh, departments within the, uh, the Department of Interior. Um, and um, I just look forward to her continued leadership in any capacity, uh, you know, and she's our neighbor uh, from Laguna Pueblo. And um, I'm just really blessed to, to know such uh, an individual with a big heart and um, honest and compassionate uh, human being. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today and congratulations on your term, uh, Governor Bio, and also thank you to President Aguilar. Thank you. All right, Gene's about to say it best as he always does, but we wish you a healthy, happy, and safe holiday weekend. We know times are difficult. We hope that uh, we can be a resource for you in navigating these strange and unprecedented waters. And again, we bring you a message of hope this week. Uh, obviously, this holiday weekend is not what any of us would have wanted. Sacrifices continue to be made. Let's uh, all knuckle down and try to take this as an opportunity to not only be thankful for the things that we have, uh, but also look for opportunities to spread that appreciation uh, to the world around us in whatever ways we can, whether it's a phone call 
a Zoom meeting with a friend you've lost touch with. There are lots of ways that technology allows us to connect in ways we couldn't. Uh, maybe we can start new traditions, um, build memories that uh, we can look back on the Thanksgiving of 2020, knowing full well what a challenge it was, but that it wasn't something that defeated us. That's my hope for all of us. And I know Gene, he'll share that as well here. But that's the show for this week. We'll be back next week. The line will be back. We gave them the week off for the holiday as well, but we'll have a whole new panel for you and lots to talk about as always. We Thank you for listening in uh, and for staying engaged and informed, and we'll talk to you soon. As with most things this year, this holiday weekend is not what any of us planned I'm sure we are all suffering from bouts of isolation, anxiety, and depression, and that's completely normal. It's yet another blow this year that we need to keep our distance from those who would comfort us most, and that would be family and friends. But may we also look at this as an opportunity to find new ways of reaching out, maybe start some new traditions, and of course, keep our eyes and hearts focused on making 2021 a better, safer, and healthier year. From all of us at New Mexico in Focus, I thank you for watching, for engaging, and for most of all, caring. We'll see you again next week in Focus.